0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, I'm introducing a new uh, potentially monthly podcast, potentially weekly if it goes well uh breaking down the nba and it is a format that allows a wide variety of topics to be covered and thus a more inclusive environment for a wide swath of nba fans uh i'm joined today by danny larue who's going to be the guinea pig for this little uh experiment danny how you doing
1: I'm doing well, sir. Um, Appropriate to be the guinea pig, considering I believe the first episode of Game Theory was the two of us just talking about stuff.
0: That's... Probably true. I think it's right. I think that's actually dead right, to be honest. Uh, I I don't even think like the first episode of Game Theory is on this feed anymore. Like, I don't even think people can find it because whenever I transferred from the good people over at CLNS uh, over to the athletic, I think I might have lost maybe like 100, 150 episodes kind of near the end there. But that's fine. Whatever. You know, archives are old archives and they go away sometimes. the format here that we are going to employ, uh, I'm referring to 21 questions. And it, yes, of course, we're basing it off of the 50 Cent song. Shout out 50 Cent. Shout out Megan Good. Everyone remembers that video. If you are, what, between 25 and 35. Is that is that age right, Danny?
1: I mean, I'm 36, but Sure.
0: Yeah, like I'll throw it up to 40. Like everyone remembers 21 questions video. It's like, you know, one of the most important videos I can remember in my childhood for sure. Uh, So we're going to run through 21 questions. We're going to put a three minute stopwatch on the clock here. And I am going to just ask Danny 21 questions about the NBA. Danny's going to answer. We'll have a little bit of a back and forth if we've got time. And then we're going to move on to the next question. So, Danny, are you ready to go? Or are you excited to jump into this?
1: I am. I will note at the outset that I'm going to focus heavily on the games that I've watched. So you yeah, might yeah, say, yeah. "Hey, what about what about Miami? They crushed Milwaukee." I didn't watch that game. That wasn't one of the ones. So I'm going to focus on that. Though, I, if I mention, I will mention some stuff if I, you know, if I can. That if there's context that is useful
0: yeah like the fifth question here is about milwaukee and i have only watched their first game i, I did also did not watch the miami game i bet on miami in that game uh very happily
1: but, congratulations i believe
0: <laughs> yeah but i it was just like as soon as drew was out and they were missing portis still and then brooke ended up missing that game as well it was like oh so they're gonna be missing everyone and it's a revenge game yeah let's uh let, let's ride here uh so yeah, we're, we're going to talk about the games we've seen, for the most part. Danny and I obviously watch a lot of basketball. Like I've been three-screening the first few days of the season. I'd imagine you're doing the same, especially on the opening night where all of the teams played, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, Nate and I did the broadcast, so I, had, I focused on a couple. I've actually been watching more after-the-fact full games this mm. year, so I actually have some more. It's been fun to do that a little bit, just because... I want to get a full sense of teams and then just oh, I'm going using the extra time during the day to do it that way but you know, i've I've watched a lot already
0: okay, so let's dive in I'm gonna start the stopwatch and we're gonna start with question one Danny what team most surprised you positively in their opener
1: so I would say i uh... I would give an honorable mention, very honorable, to the Atlanta Hawks. I thought they looked great. They did nothing. They did nothing really wrong. I just already thought they were good. And the most positive surprise for me was the Minnesota Timberwolves. Nate and I did their game against the Houston Rockets, and maybe it's that the Rockets will make everybody look good. But McDaniel's and Okogie were super disruptive defensively. They played with more spirit than I had seen before, and kind of everything worked. So, I'm not saying they're a playoff team, but this was the best top to bottom performance I have seen from Minnesota in years.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the defense with Minnesota because they looked like a different team defensively in a positive way. I also thought Anthony Edwards was very aggressive and very active on defense, and we're going to talk about Edwards in a little bit here. But he was actually like really aggressive, and that's something that he's mentioned a lot in the preseason is that his goal is to really become like a high-level defender. He feels the offense is there, but he knows he has the tools to be a high-level defender and wasn't all that great as a defender as a rookie, as many rookies are. So I'm intrigued with what I saw from Minnesota. I do think that that first game, I'm going to be honest with you, I think that was more Houston being terrible. But I'm on record thinking Houston's going to be absolutely terrible this year. Like I I just saw nothing from their young players that says that those guys are ready to actually win games when it matters. Even like win games when it doesn't matter at the NBA level.
1: Yeah, and with, with Edwards, there are a couple of different thresholds that matter for players defensively, but one of them is not being the point of failure, and he was that yeah. actually more, more often than I think some would care to admit last year. He was not that at all in, in game one, and I thought that he wasn't getting beat for back cuts. He wasn't falling asleep nearly as much, and that is a it is a, you could think of it as a small step of not being the point of failure, but it's actually a massive one for the viability of a team defensively.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad you brought up that too because it just the thing that I think has held back Carl Towns often on that end is that he is a lot of the time the point of failure, uh, rotating on the backside from help. But I thought he was pretty good in the game against Houston. They do have some dangerous offensive creators at the very least. Uh, I want to see how this team looks. Like I am, I'm pleasantly very optimistic about the Timberwolves. I took their over in the preseason. I didn't bet it, but. I When I did the over-under podcast with Robbie Calland, I, I thought that this team was poised probably to win more games than what they were projected.
1: Yeah, I think that's oh, totally fair.
0: Okay. Man, we did well there. Two minutes, 50 seconds on the dot. Question number two. What team disappointed you most in their opener?
1: Yeah, I, I think part of it is also, you know, I, I watched a lot of games after the fact, so you generally, those end up being closer, you know, like the the indie Charlotte gamer, for example. But of the ones that I focused on, the Dallas Mavericks, I think, are pretty clear. And part of it tying in with, uh, like, you know, Nate and I talk about this a lot, is it's always more concerning and more affirming when the thing that went right or wrong ties in with what you previously thought, and... The you know the the worry Jason Kidd was to me the worst coach in the NBA when the Bucks fired him and the yep. idea was that part of it was that he didn't tailor his approach to his personnel and that it was antiquated and it hurt his team and I thought that Dallas's offense and their defense looked materially worse some of that was due to personnel and yeah they weren't like a hundred percent full strength and everything like that but they were close enough and they were playing a very good team but not like the 2016 17 warriors where it's like oh no matter what you do you're gonna look bad so that would they were my number one
0: yeah no i agree i, I mean look like i went on a twitter like thread storm about watching that mavericks game and it was horrible like mavericks fans have shared a shit ton of the numbers that i have uh tweeted like that uh that thing has like 800 likes right now the thread that i've posted they uh They took, I want to say it was 20 mid-range shots in that game. Last year, they took 11.8 per game. They posted up Dorian Finney-Smith, I think, three times in that game. He had two post-ups the entire season last year in 60 games. Uh I think they took 31 non uh, shots at the rim or threes last year. They took 22. And then I actually had, uh, or last year they took 25.8 of those shots. But the thing is that they played slower in that game against the Hawks. And in terms of, I had a analytics professional in the NBA actually reach out to me because he saw the thread that I was posting about the Mavericks. He said basically that, uh, if you combine long twos and long paint shots, so the shots I'm referring to, they shot 33% of their shots from the non-restricted paint area and from the mid-range, which is the highest number essentially of the Luka Doncic era. And that happened in game one. Like that's that's just absolutely crazy. They had 10 post-ups through three quarters. Last year they averaged seven. All of the numbers there are just bad, it feels like, for Dallas.
1: Yeah, no, I I don't really have anything to add. I'm just wholeheartedly great.
0: Yeah, like, I'm just very disappointed. And this is purely a Jason Kidd problem. And and let's transition to the next question here. Uh, I had a what the fuck is this Mavericks offense question, but I'll transition it to what the fuck were the Mavericks thinking hiring jason kidd like this is absolutely insane to me to hire this guy to run your team whenever you're downgrading from rick carlisle who was a spacing and efficiency savant and you're going to jason kidd who has in one game made the dallas mavericks offense like look wholly unwatchable
1: to an extent it reminds me of a and i think sometimes this is overstated the there's this thing that runs around sometimes of a team drafts a college player who doesn't look like they're going to translate. And one of the reasons, like I think of Jimmerford at this way, this is some of the reporting that was out there at the time of, oh, he's going to sell tickets. And my answer is always, you know what sells tickets? Good players winning games. And Jason Kidd <laughs> is, and so, you know, like Carmelo Anthony didn't sell tickets in the NBA because of his time at Syracuse. He sold tickets in the NBA because he became one of the, in some people's opinion, 75 best players of all time. And that that sort of thing you know Le- LeBron didn't play in college not a big problem and kid is a similar thing in that it seems like part of the argument that Nico Harrison and Mark Cuban used to get kid is that he is very popular among players which is true but Dallas doesn't have cap space Dallas doesn't ha- they have Luca who you want to of course keep happy but Kid has been, you know, he was the worst coach in the league. He, and and also, like, the way he went out at his last two stops is extremely notable. And then the other part about it is, I do not want to say that a coach who was bad in one stop is bad for the rest of their career. I mean, you could point to various coaches. Monte Williams is probably the best prominent recent example, yep. though Nate McMillan is another one, that just Pretty because calm. a coach had a bad stop previously means they're a bad coach forever? Absolutely not. But... It means that you should be very judicious about giving them another chance and seeing what it was. And, like, I mean, the other part of it is that the Mavericks are privy to a lot more information about what Jason Kidd feels. Like, What okay, what did he tell them he wanted to do with this roster? Did he say that he wanted to start Dwight Powell and Kristaps Porzingis together? Because if he did, then you shouldn't hire him
0: yeah so that that part of it's interesting too I think that they were probably drawn to Jason Kidd's defensive teams and the success he had defensively uh at his yeah. stops well, in and, Brooklyn and, 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 in and that Mo- showed in their point,
1: that showed in Dallas's point of attack defense against the Hawks which was oh wait that's right terrible yeah <laughs>
0: It was real bad. It was real bad. Uh, look, uh, Jason Kidd's not a good NBA coach. Like, it, it just kind of is what it is. Uh, I I understand wanting to change Luka Doncic on some level, but changing Luka Doncic into a uh, guy who runs like playing off ball like half the time and running side pick and rolls as opposed to like middle ball screens, like. Uh, it, well- what are we doing here? Sorry,
1: I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the—I guess I did. But um, the, the other part of that is, if you're going to think about that sort of a concept, and the Golden State Warriors ran into this last year, if you're going to go to that approach, you have to have the complementary pieces that make sense. You're going to take the ball out of Luka Doncic's hands. Okay, I think that's a poor decision, but who else do you have? I mean, Jalen Brunson is really the only other guy that I would trust to run in action— on the entire Mavericks roster. Tim Hardaway can do some secondary stuff, but you don't have a Bogdan Bogdanovich or somebody or like a bigger guy who can do some of that stuff. So the beautiful game doesn't work as well.
0: Yeah, no, it, it really does not. Uh, let, let's move on to our next question here. What player surprised you most in the opener?
1: I that's, that's a good one. Um I wasn't as familiar with Chris Duarte. I mean, his, his mm. I didn't get to watch film on him. His and, and watching him the full game against the against the Hornets, I'm just like, oh, he's an NBA player. Like that was, yes, he's yep. also the age of an NBA veteran at 24, but that doesn't matter if you can play. And Duarte, his shot looked very comfortable. He looked comfortable with the ball in his hands, more of a secondary tertiary ball handler, but take yep. advantage of a mismatch? Absolutely. And his shot looked good. He looked confident. And that is that is a success. Like that, I mean, I'm I'm not saying he's going to make. You know, I think it was like six and nine on jump shots or something like that. I mean, I'm not saying he's going to be that for the rest of his career. But there is a part of this that is a version of the eye test, which is basically like, do I think this guy can play? And to say that about a somebody in their first NBA game against reasonably capable opposition, huge surprise.
0: Yeah. No, I, I'm. Honestly, not surprised at all with him. It's funny. Like, I'm surprised that he, you know, averaged or scored 20 points, right? And made, I think it was like six threes or something.
1: But, and it's not like they were feeding him.
0: Oh, no. Like, it was all within the flow of the offense, but this is just kind of who he is. Like, I thought it was the cleanest, most direct translation into being into someone being a high level role player of any player I've evaluated in a long time. Like this, people who listen to this podcast and people who listen to me and Matt Penny drone on about prospects uh, most weeks on this show will know that, look, Chris Duarte was probably my favorite player in last year's draft class. Like, just straight up, I loved... Everything that that dude stood for. He is like elite of the elite in terms of character when you talk to people uh, around the Oregon program and around him. Like, he is a perfectly translatable game because he's defensively responsible and was somewhat disruptive in college while also being an elite shooter off of movement. He can occasionally knock down pull ups, but he's much better just like as a relocation pull up shooter. But that's fine. Like, that's all he needs to be at the NBA level. Uh, Yeah, Chris Duarte is a, uh, to me, look like I guess there is no such thing as a no-brainer in the NBA like Corey Kispert I thought would be okay to play immediately and he just was not like you looked in the preseason it was not he was not ready to play but Duarte I thought even more so than Kispert was ready to play and um, because of that attention to detail defensively I thought that uh, I thought he would play I didn't know if he'd start immediately and play real minutes but I thought he was ready to play for sure let's go to number five is this the most wide open you can remember a preseason title race? Like that—that's that, kind of what I'm thinking. The more that I watch the NBA right now, like I—I I know that the Nets are the betting market favorites, like in a substantial way, even without Kyrie. But I, I don't know if they really are the enormous favorites without Kyrie. And then the Lakers clearly are going to have at least some adjustment time. I think, to figure out how to play with Russell Westbrook and LeBron and Anthony Davis all together. And uh, Denver is without Jamal Murray. The Suns uh, just might not quite be ready for an NBA title, although they would be one of my favorites to come out of the West. The Utah Jazz still have playoff questions. Is this the most wide-open you can remember a preseason title race?
1: Yes. Do you want another two minutes and 59 seconds? But uh, it is. And I I think that Part of it part of the reason is that the teams that I would have normally trusted the most have really big questions. And so that would be like so in in the East, Brooklyn, it's will what what is what is Kyrie or if they theoretically traded him, a replacement or anything else like that? like I think the Nets are the most likely champion right now, but part of that is accounting for the possibility that Kyrie comes back. If you told me, he, If you told me, put it in writing, he is both on the Nets and doesn't play at all this year, I would, I probably wouldn't have them as the favorites. I just think there's a possibility. But you can also say the Clippers. I mean, I, I, I think that their roster is really strong, and I think Ty is a very good coach, but Kawhi Leonard is a huge question mark. Jamal Murray's a huge question mark. Uh, I'm less sold on the Lakers as a playoff team this year than I was last year because I think they made their roster less dynamic and less defensively versatile and less offensively versatile. And there are a lot of other teams that are very strong, the Suns, the Bucks included. And, but am I sold that they are absolutely you know, like obvious title favorites? No. So I think this is the most wide open it's been, especially also because there are teams more towards the fringe that I think if they show some stuff, they could become plausible. I'm not going to say they probably become favorites, but they could become
0: plausible. Yeah, and we can transition to one of those teams now with the next question. I mean, look, we definitely trust Stephen Curry. We definitely trust Draymond Green, that those guys are 16-game players. Have the first couple of games given you a little bit more confidence that the Warriors have improved their depth enough to where they can actually be in the title race? Oof.
1: Oof. My general threshold for title team, for title contenders, not necessarily favorites, is elite on one end and good enough on the other. And so what mm-hmm. that means is basically, and so a lot of times actually in modern vintage, this has been elite defensively and good enough offensively. That's what the Bucs were. That's what the Toronto Raptors were. I would argue that's what the Lakers were. And for the Warriors, the theory would have to be the other way, that they're elite offensively and that they're good enough defensively. The elite on offense, when Steph Curry's on the floor, sure. Uh, I'm a, I'm still very concerned, as I have been for the entire Stephen Curry era, that their offense, when he's off the floor, is going to be a big problem. I mean, I think they'll be better once Klay gets back, but do that. Defense, I thought they were terrible overall on Thursday night. I thought that their defense was bad. You know, their offense was, was mostly fine, but the, the defense yeah. was bad. And getting Clay Thompson back will help. Getting James Wiseman back will probably hurt. So the question is basically do they have do they have enough to like in their best lineups to stop teams? And I would say I'll say a very tentative yes, but it's very tentative.
0: So why do you worry about the Warriors defense knowing that their defense once they got like a fully healthy Draymond Green last year was a top 5 defense in the NBA? Like they were excellent last year defensively, I thought.
1: That's a fair question, but my instinct is that Clay, when he comes back, is going to be more of a wing defender, you know, a 2-3, than the 1-2 he was. And Clay was a a very important point of attack defender for the Warriors, and they don't—the bigger part of that, in some ways, is that if he can't be that, the Warriors don't really have a sufficient replacement. They, you know, it's just—Steph Curry, you don't—A, you don't want to ask him to do that because it's burning the candle at both ends, and B, he's not particularly good at that, and so— I think that they can. The help stuff will probably be fine, and they have enough on the wing, especially now that Wiggins has improved. But if I'm gonna, you know, am I gonna bet the bet the farm that in key moments against you know the top four teams in the league that they can do it? I'm gonna be queasy the whole way through.
0: Yeah, I get that. Okay, let's go to number seven here. If Giannis learned how to shoot pull ups like he showed confidence with in the opener, how drastically do you think that that alters? the MVP conversation and the best player in the world conversation.
1: If it holds, it'd be huge. I mean, Giannis, to me, not only is he one of the most valuable regular season defensive players, he proved in the 2021 playoffs that he's one of the most valuable playoff defenders in the league. And so the difference between, you know, his value is different than somebody like LeBron or somebody like Durant because he is less talented offensively than those gentlemen are. But... It makes Giannis an easier cog to fit in offensively. It makes him... I mean, he's already brutally hard to defend. And it's not about making all of those shots. It's about being comfortable taking them within the flow and taking away some of the ways the teams want to defend him. So I think it would be massive.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that if he actually is shooting like pull-up jumpers comfortably, I think he's almost pretty clearly... the best player in the world right like it's I guess that he's never going to be the shot creator that Kevin Durant is going to be because Kevin Durant is just one of the what five best shot creators of all time in terms of being able to get to his shot get to his spots and make shots efficiently from all three levels wherever he wants to whenever he wants to but you take into account the fact that Giannis is just such a force in transition and creates points that way You take into account that he is genuinely one of the, I would say, five best defenders in the NBA. And this isn't to say that Kevin Durant is a bad defender. uh, But I think those are the two guys right now that I would have, along with uh, LeBron James just right beneath them. And the fact that LeBron James is as old as he is and is still, like, worthy of discussion within this conversation, or at least mention, is insane and incredible, right? But... uh, I really think that if he is knocking down pull-up jumpers in the way that he showed confidence in, like if the confidence matches the results by the end of the year, I do think that he's probably the best player on planet Earth, right? Because this is what we've just been waiting for.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally fair.
0: Okay, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to go to the next set of seven. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with Nord VPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is gonna hide your location from your ISP hackers and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN. If you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So, When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to Nordvpn.com slash Game Theory G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to NordVPN.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough. Uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Number eight. This is a question that we kind of uh, teased a little bit on your podcast when we recorded earlier this week uh, for Real GM Radio. Did the Suns make the right or wrong call not extending DeAndre Ayton?
1: Oh boy. I mean, (laughs) you can you can make an argument. I mean, I think one of the strongest ones in terms of being the wrong call is just you know making frustrating people involved and the fact that you want him in your organization long term but i'm going to go correct call and the reason why is i you know i've been pretty consistent on this over the years that players who are not in that like first and second team all nba conversation or that you think have a reasonable path to getting there like those are the no brainer you don't piss them off they're going to get the max anyway like the lucas and the Treys of the world I have felt over the years that teams are too willing to give, even if it's the 25% max, just a year early to players that are below that threshold. And I think Aiton is. And, And he had a really nice year. He had a really nice playoffs. But the idea that basically, like, how much do you have to game plan for him where he is the X best player on a really good team? I think the answer to that is probably third. And... Third is, I mean, that's that's great. Like the third, third best player on a title team is 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 a real success, and if that gets up to second, then you you really have something cooking. But generally speaking, to me, you can wait it out a little bit on those guys. I don't love the process from what has been reported, including by our colleague Sam Amick, about how the Suns got to that point. But it, in terms of that decision, I'm a, I'm broadly on board.
0: So I think that it's reasonable to say that he is not yet a max player. The problem is that they don't really have a function now because of the bridges in Shamit deals to open cap space next year and like really have flexibility. So in some ways, the next few years, at least the cap space, like you just have no better way to use the money on top of that. Sure. This new TV money is coming in 2025 and we assume it's going to take effect for the 2025, 26 year. And if I'm DeAndre Ayton's representatives, I am just saying, look, someone give me an offer sheet. We'll try and force them to you guys. Ultimately, Phoenix can match and we'll be stuck there for three years. But we're going to make it as miserable as possible for Phoenix to match this offer sheet. We're going to go player option after three years. We're going to go um, you know, half the money up front. We're going to go and just add all of the max trade kickers that you can and make life as miserable as possible for Phoenix to max this match, this offer sheet. Robert Sarver is not necessarily the most consistent owner in terms of willingness to pay. I I feel like there's a real chance now that the Suns are going to lose Deandre Ayton after 2025. When in reality, they probably could have waited and ended up not losing him until after 2027 And that feels like a problem to me. Like, I think that DeAndre Ayton's a really valuable piece when it comes to the playoffs, not because of his ability to, uh, you know, create shots or anything, but it's just hard to find centers that can stay on the floor in terms of perimeter defense and actually move their feet while also providing real rim protection.
1: Yeah, I I think all that's fair. Um, One note that I'll make is that the Suns, If they want to in their back pocket, they can do that maximum qualifying offer. We haven't seen it much in recent vintage because most of these deals just get done. But the the benefit that Phoenix has there is that they can can see how this year goes. And Aiton has been, you know, I was going to say he's been pretty durable, but he did have a suspension, which was PED-related. So that's how we're going to count that is a little bit different and so i but i think having that year of information it's very likely in a lot of these circumstances that the player is just going to get the max contract and so be it and you have some hard feelings but it's a long time until they can get their freedom but it is um but as i said like you got into this the process here is a little bit weird especially with the tv money coming in
0: okay let's go to number nine is anthony edwards the most fun player in the nba for you right now
1: I enjoy Edwards a lot, uh, but it would take a lot of growth for him this year to pass John ja Morant. I mean, I don't know how much of <laughs> how much of Memphis Cleveland you watched, but Ja All had it, a baby. block. He had a block on Lowry Markinen at the end of the first half. That was astonishing. Like he basically got to the top <laughs> of the he got to the top of the box to block a seven footer, and he also, of course, had a, a had an alley oop catch a dunk where he caught the ball behind him. I think it was a pass from Desmond Bain, and and dunked it and. Ja, you know, sort of tying in with the old, um, the old stuff about why small guys win the dunk contest because it's more impressive when they do stuff. It's like the way he pops off the floor just defies imagination sometimes, and yeah. I, I, you know, I he's been a league pass. You know, as Nate and I've done the NBA cast, he's been a favorite of ours for years, and. The other, I mean, the other to me, serious competitor, and it's just a very different type of thing is Steph Curry, and I mean, I've spent, you know, I've I've covered, I've seen more Steph Curry games than anybody else, I believe, in my professional career in person, and there's not much better than that. And I was, I was in the building for his twenty-five point first quarter on Thursday night.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think Steph would be my pick for this because there's just nothing like it. Isn't that, like there's just literally nothing like watching Stephen Curry get hot? I was explaining this to Laura, my wife. Um we we were getting back from dinner last night, and she's kinda asked how my work day was, and I was just like regaling her about Stephen Curry at that point. I was just like, there is I will never watch someone Where that specific type of energy is real every time you watch him where you just feel this like this buzz every single time he touches the ball. But all of this like conversation about fun is aesthetic, right? Like, I'll say this. I, I don't think anyone is as fun to watch, like in terms of reacting to things that happen on the court as Anthony Edwards is. Like him look him hitting that three against the Rockets and then looking at Steven Silas and going, you need to call a timeout. It was fantastic. That shit had me cackling. Like I didn't get to watch you and Nate uh, do that game because I watched that game way after on Synergy. But like, did you guys notice that in real time?
1: we we didn't um i think we were that was a point when the game was getting out of hand i think and and they did call a timeout so we started getting into all that i wish i had i wish i had caught it but yeah it was it was fantastic
0: oh my god uh it, anthony edwards in terms of just like pure like reactions and uh, just like the the funny stuff that he's going to do on the court maybe anthony edwards is the funniest uh NBA player right now to watch as opposed to the most fun but yeah I, I, miss, I,
1: I miss Tim Duncan's reactions to fouls by the way that was that was one of my all-timer like yeah. just like keep an eye out for this
0: <laughs> oh man Let, let's go to number 10 here I'll, I'll rephrase this question after, uh, you know, originally it was just like, how how much do you think Joel Embiid wants to punch Ben Simmons? Like, as he goes through practice and is a dickhead. But, like, it seems like given Shams Trani is reporting today that some bridges have been mended and Ben Simmons met with the team and... There, there seems to be given Tobias Harris's suite uh, saying that they'll respect his privacy and space during this time when he's ready. We will embrace our brother with love and handle our business on the court. That's it. That's all. It seems like they've come to something of a mutual understanding ish, uh, but just like how frustrated are the vets on this team with Ben Simmons? And I mean, like we don't think this is coming to an end anytime soon, do we?
1: Oh, no, I think this is going to be a long haul for a bunch of different reasons. But I think that the Simmons frustration, I think, goes in a couple of different angles. And I think the one that shouldn't be lost in the shuffle, and I don't want to make, you know, and and part of why I want to focus on this is that it is very possible that Simmons is dealing with mental health stuff right now, and I want to acknowledge the potential validity of that, is that over the years— Ben Simmons a prodigious natural talent, and this goes back to uh, our mutual friend Jonathan Gavoni's piece that he he retweeted recently of of going back to 2016 about you know the idea of you know Simmons's mentality. And Ben Simmons has been naturally talented the whole time I've been following him, and you followed him longer than I has. And but he's also had identifiable weaknesses, and it is possible that those are so intractable that if he put infinite time in, he just can't solve it. But generally speaking. Somebody who has the physical gifts that Ben Simmons does, if they work on their shot, if they work on some of these stuff, it's going to get better. And so, yeah, him not being present right now is something, but Simmons, if he had, over the years, before all of this current stuff, if he had had taken those steps, if he had grown his game, even modestly, the Sixers would be so good that none of this tension would exist.
0: Yeah. No. I, I agree with that. Like at the end of the day, it comes down to Ben not having taken strides in his game and that that's where all of this starts. It all begins with the fact that Ben Simmons has never learned to shoot and has essentially lost confidence, it feels like, because teams have figured out how to defend him because he's never like improved upon the specific skills that he needs to improve upon so yeah it's uh it's frustrating i don't know that we need to like say a ton more about that i feel like everyone is doing the ben simmons takes so let's move forward the kings were really fun on uh what was that was wednesday i guess it was in the united states they beat the portland trailblazers by two in a really tight game that was strangely officiated down the stretch let's go with uh
1: what in that time strangely played down the stretch
0: <laughs> and at time strangely played uh i think that my pick for first time all-star this year in the west because every year we get like one or two right i think that dearon fox is going to get a wild card slot uh on the all-star team in the west are you as high as fox or as high on fox as i am
1: I don't think so. I I like Fox a lot, but to me, I think Ja Morant as the most important thing that point guards can do is create shots for themselves and others. And I think Morant has taken another step forward. And so I think both of them have taken steps forward. So Morant was already there to quote the great Pierce Hawthorne. I think he was already streets ahead. So (laughs) I I think that I, I, I will put Ja in front in that conversation, but... It's, you know, I, I think that Fox is is worthy of consideration, and it is true, I mean, because we always think about these things in more static terms, that for years, the West guard, you know, getting into the West all-star guard conversation has been so brutal. But James Harden's in the East now, and that makes it a little bit easier, and I try not to do the, oh, well, like, Russell Westbrook's super popular, and he's in the Western Conference. It's more like, will you be among the five best guards in the West? And so... If I had to make a pick of a West, a new West guard, um, I also also can't remember whether Donovan Mitchell's made it before. I think he has.
0: He has, yeah, um, he made so it last it would, year.
1: So then it would. So then he wouldn't qualify. But so I'm going to go Jaw over Fox off the cuff.
0: So here, here'd be my case for De'Aaron. and he looks so much stronger this year. Like he, does. he looks way more physically powerful and I have some questions about the three-point jumper but I mean he was pulling with confidence in that game against the Blazers like he took eight threes in that game I I don't know the exact numbers on De'Aaron in terms of like how many times he's taken eight threes in a game I cannot imagine it's been often can you
1: I I don't think it's been very
0: much Like he took thirteen in a game against the Pelicans last year. He has he took eight in ten games last year. Uh, Just kind of looking through the numbers here, but uh, it just feel it felt different to me. I guess like it, it just felt much different in terms of this is a guy that looks like he is totally in control of what he's doing at all times, and that feels like something that definitely wasn't true whenever he was younger. And it feels like something that's going to be translatable to the Kings, hopefully being pretty competitive this year. I mean, I I'd, I had some questions about the Kings coming into the year, but if De'Aaron is going to do this, and his syner- like his synergy with Rashawn Holmes is really strong, I thought Rashawn Holmes was really really good in that game against the Blazers. Uh, I I don't know. I, I think that De'Aaron Fox is probably going to average. 26 points, 7 assists, and once you start getting into that range, you're in all-star numbers range at least. Uh, let's go to question 12. We kind of mentioned them a little bit earlier when talking about Dallas, but I think I was blown away by Atlanta uh, in that game against Dallas on Thursday night. Do you think there's a more modernly built team than the Hawks right now? And the, re- the reason I say that is that they have multiple bigs that they can play and protect the rim. They have a lot of switchable defenders. They have elite level shooting and they have a monster point guard who can take on uh high level usage at all times. It feels like Atlanta, just in terms of team building, not necessarily in terms of talent. It feels like Atlanta has really figured out the way to construct a roster in the modern NBA.
1: I love their offensive versatility and the idea that, just because you have a heliocentric player, this ties in with the criticism I had of the Mavericks earlier, just because you have a heliocentric player doesn't mean you want them to be the only guy who can handle the ball. So having Bogdanovich out there, at times Gallinari, we'll see what kind of growth and comfort Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter have this year. That makes things a lot easier. And John Collins, I mean, he had a beautiful alley to Capella in that game against the Mavs. But my yep. answer, which surprised myself, like we talked about these questions a little bit ahead of time, is actually the Boston Celtics. Yeah, that's a good good answer. The Celtics have two different things that I think the Hawks do not. Not that I'm saying they're a significantly better team or anything like that. One is, I think their roster is more overall defensively versatile. I mean, Robert Williams, his switching stuff is really interesting. But also, they can play smaller. They don't have that really, like... The Draymond green ask. I mean, unless you think Grant Williams can be that guy, like switchy five, but I think Robert Williams might end up being that guy. But then the other thing that I find so tantalizing about the Celtics, and is, I would argue is a more modern thing that, as we move into the league, could become there, is that they have a bunch of guys that are similar levels of quality. And what that brings, should Ime Udoka approach it this way is that he can he doesn't have to close with the same five every time and that there will be nights when Dennis Schroeder makes sense. There will be nights that Dennis Schroeder does not make sense. There will be nights that Robert Williams should be out there and everything else. And so I, I think that also their, their multitude of wings and wing-sized guys is thoroughly modern. I mean, the idea of Tatum and Brown and Marcus Smart and potentially Aaron Nesmith if he can put it together a little bit, and we'll see with Romeo Langford and all that. And even their, some of their non-wings kind of in some ways have wingy elements is is really intriguing. So I'm going to go with the Celtics.
0: Speaking of the Celtics, a question that I had scheduled for later, but let's just kind of transition to it now. I mean, I think Robert Williams looks like a monster for the Celtics. (laughs) I thought that he looked great in that double overtime game. Uh, He played 44 minutes in that game. It was the second game he's ever played over 30 minutes uh, in a third game, I believe, Uh, over 30 minutes in his career. And I, I I'm blown away by his versatility and his defensive ability as a switch defender, even, and his rim protection and his passing. Like it feels like he really might end up being like a top 10 center in the NBA. So he signed a four year, $55 million deal in the offseason, And it's a deal that I think he kind of had to sign just given that he's been so non durable throughout the course of his career to this point. But do we think there's a real chance that we look back on that deal and we're like, oh, this was a great deal for Boston to get done as quickly as they did in the offseason, even before uh, like the traditional October extension season started?
1: There is absolutely a chance, and I would have to really think about So, I mean, I would put Bam in a different conversation because he's established a different level of quality than a lot of these other young guys. But if we're going to throw some of the other young bigs kind of in, in a, in a path with Aiton and Jared Allen, who got a lot of money and Robert Williams and uh, various, you know, various other players. Now Towns is 26. So he's, he's not in this, he's a little bit too old for this now. And you could, if you wanted to put Miles Turner, I think you probably could. I, I think there's a meaningful chance that Robert Williams ends up being the most the the most dominant of those players. That he, I, I mean, it, it, it could be it could be a lot of them, but I like I like Robert Williams more than Jared Allen if he can stay on the floor. I think that his defense he he has more he can do more things defensively. I think than Jared Allen. I, like. yeah. I, I mean, I've been banging the Jared Allen drum for four years now. Like this is not yeah. a this is not a I hate Jared Allen segment. Um, and Robert Williams. He pops a little bit differently offensively. It's funny to say that after Allen went 11 for 11 from the field in a game that the team played three bigs. But I, I think that, and I'm saying there's a chance for Williams. I'm not saying it's definite, especially when you consider what Ayton did in the playoffs. But his ceiling is the roof.
0: It, it really is. Uh, it is very, very impressive. And uh, every time I watch Robert Williams, like just because I have these preconceived notions sometimes of guys, and I'm really good at you know, changing my opinions of players based on new information. But I just have these visions in my brain of Robert Williams being like a very simple player at Texas A&M. He didn't show any of the passing stuff that he has shown with Boston. I'm just staggered every time he makes like, he's out on the perimeter, he short rolls, and then he makes like this crazy, like overhead looping whip pass to the corner. And I'm like, wait, where did this come from? Like every time Robert Williams is on the court, I really just like, I learned new things about him and I'm just like, this is uh, this is very, very impressive. So I I think it's probably going to be a steal as long as he can stay on the court. That's that's what it always come down to. Can he stay on the court?
1: Yeah. One of the differences between Williams and Jared Allen is that Robert Williams just try shit. And there's an interesting, I I don't have the data (laughs) strong enough in my head, but there's this thing that when young players, when they turn the ball over, it can actually be an indicator, a positive indicator with the idea that, some of the things that they're doing are, are indicators of ambition and intention. And sometimes that leads to bad stuff because some players just make bad passes. But like, for example, Trey Young, and I'm not comparing Robert Williams to Trey Young as a passer, but the idea that he's thinking about things that other guys aren't necessarily, if you can hone it, if you can sand down the edges, that can actually be really useful for you. And you brought up the short roll. That's one of the most encouraging things about Robert.
0: So let's go to a question that I had scheduled for a little bit later, but we can move to it now, is how long does this three big experiment last for the Cavaliers? Because, oh boy, was that a disaster. I know that there have been some numbers shared uh, online about like, yeah, the starters, they were fine. They only gave up 91 points per 100 possessions in 10 minutes. I mean, you watch the tape. It was it was ugly and look like not every team is going to have John Morant and John Morant is a specifically bad player to play a three big lineup against because of his speed, both out in transition and in the half court. But man, that looked ugly when I watched that Cavs game. Uh, And like, it's funny because I didn't even feel like their players played bad. Like, I felt like they actually played pretty well in that game, especially offensively. But how long does this three big experiment last for the Cavs?
1: I think it's going to last a while. And the challenge for J.B. Bickerstaff is that you have to replace one of them with somebody who's playing better or who makes more sense. And Isaac Okoro is the most natural one there. and But the problem is I think Okoro's best defending guards. And I think he's actually very good yeah. at it. He had some really nice performances last year. But let's say you're going to do that. Then Isaac Okoro is largely going to be, if he if you want him guarding the other team's best ball handler, then what are you doing with Garland and Sexton? So you run into those sorts of problems. And Okoro, not a reliable shooter, so then playing him with Mobley, who showed a little bit, and Allen, who, a talented player, but just doesn't really space the floor that much, that gets into challenge. The other one would be go to somebody like Jetty Osman, but Osman doesn't have the equity with the franchise that Markin does. They just gave up stuff to acquire him. He paid him a bunch of money. And while Osman has also paid a bunch of money, it's a different sort of deal. So I think this is going to be the approach for a while. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be the only thing they do, but I think it's going to be the primary thing for, I would say, a significant portion of this year.
0: Here's the thing that frustrated me with it, and I'll uh, I'll talk positively about Evan Mobley here in a second, but, like, I, I don't think Jarrett Allen is strong enough as a rotational defender consistently to be the guy that, like, is your true anchor who's paid, like, a crazy amount of money defensively, and... The Grizzlies shot like 67 to 70% at the rim. I can't remember the exact number, but like they shot a high percentage at the rim, despite the fact that they had three bigs on the court for most of the game. And part of that is look, teams are going to be able to get out and transition against the Cavs, and they're going to create easier baskets at the rim. But like, it's. It, 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 Even in the half court, like it just seemed like John Morant was beating them to the spot, beating them to their rotation so often that it was frustrating. And he got the switch out on Laurie Markkinen so often. And that's what I worry, is just that it's going to be too hard for them to stay in front of teams uh, and and to consistently rotate. Having said that, Evan Mobley looked phenomenal. He 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 looked looked every bit... Like what we were hoping that he would look like. And he might just be the glue that can kind of hold it together well enough. But uh, I think teams are just going to attack Laurie Markkanen uh, in space way too often. And it's going to be a problem for them. Uh, let's take a quick commercial break and then we're going to get to something else that I saw in that uh, Grizzlies Caps game. <laughs> Okay, Desmond Bain showed a ton of just straight line driving and attacking. uh, Just a lot of ability to not just be a pure floor spacer uh, in that game against the Cavs, I thought. Now, part of that is that he was going up against a third big often, right? But are we a Desmond Bain buyer to be more than just a floor spacer? Because I think I'm at the point where I am.
1: I was impressed, and you don't need a second player to do everything. I mean, unless you're going to the idea is that Bane can run the show when Moraine is out. I don't think he's at that level yet, but the ability to push the advantage to create a new advantage was new for me with Bane. I thought that, as you said, he attacked way better towards the basket, and also he made good decisions once he got there which is an underrated part of that. It's not not just getting there. It's doing something smart when you do. And so, yeah, I think the in-between game, the connective tissue for Desmond Bain is better than I saw last year, and that's immensely encouraging.
0: Yeah, no, I I really agree. And him taking on some secondary creation stuff, I feel like that, Really is what they need. Like they need a guy that can just make some plays happen. Look, like I don't think he's necessarily going to be some real shot creator, but if he can just like take advantage of the opportunities that are given to him, uh, that you know someone closes out on him so heavy because of the threat of his jumper, because he's a lead, he is a legit forty percent three point shooter. I don't know. Like, I feel like that actually does really change what Memphis can do because they can then like get teams further into rotation because he can pass a little bit. I- I'm, yeah, I'm a fan of Desmond Bain. I think he's like a real building block for Memphis and not just a um, like role player or rotation player. Like, I'm not saying he's going to be an all star, but I-, I think that like he's probably a nine figure player throughout the course of his career.
1: Yeah, very well could be.
0: Okay, let's go to number 16 here. Can Eric Bledsoe sustain in a Bruce Brown-like role uh, for the Clippers this year? So Bruce Brown last year for the Nets played almost as a small ball big man. They came up, he set screens, he short rolled and made plays from within. That's really how the Clippers used him against Golden State or used Eric Bledsoe against Golden State uh, in their game on Thursday night. And it was really impressive to me that they decided uh, to utilize Bledsoe that way. I thought it was a really creative idea. How how do we think Bledsoe is going to operate within this construct going forward?
1: It was a wrinkle I did not expect to see. And the Warriors clearly did not expect to see it because they had... (laughs) Basically, no no capacity to defend it. And some of that is it's, it's, it's hard. It's challenging. And the Clippers, when Eric Bledsoe is your worst shooter and there were some of their lineups where they kind of went in that direction, you're going to be hard to defend almost no matter what. And and I think that these stout stout guys can actually be very useful in an offense in that form. Brown is, too. And I, I brought up Eric Gordon when uh, Ken Pelton was tweeting about this on Thursday. And so I think that there is, a, there is a place for Bledsoe, and that incidentally will only theoretically enhance once you get Kyle Leonard back, because that's another really good player who could space the floor. Now, part of what makes the Clippers interesting is that when Serge Baca, if and when Serge is healthy, they have somebody who can do that and also defend you know, defend, protect the rim and everything else. So I think there is a place for it, and I think Bledsoe is now I, I'm thinking of his place as being more viable for them than I did previously, and maybe that was also a reminder that the New Orleans situation last year was a tire fire, and maybe he identified that and didn't didn't have his best season. But yeah, I think there's a place for him.
0: <laughs> I just kind of think we throw away that New Orleans year for Bledsoe. I'm not saying he's going to be as good as he was on Thursday night every night, but that New Orleans situation just seemed like a total disaster, and it seemed like he was not necessarily up to his highest level. Let's go with. Uh, so, yeah, if they're going to use him creatively in a way that actually suits his skills, I'm, I'm optimistic about Bledsoe this year. But let's uh, let's go to the next question here. We can kind of buzz through these last few Uh the Spurs were really fun against the magic. I'm not sure how much of that game that you ended up watching, but they were, uh, look, part of this is the magic were awful. Uh, I'm willing to at least give them some time, I guess, uh, just because they were without all of Jonathan Isaac and Markel Fultz and Gary Harris was a late scratch and Chumo Kiki isn't playing like that's potentially three or four of their starters, I guess. But like, they just weren't running anything (laughs) like they were running the most bland, like non-creative offense. Uh, And that actually does give me some real worry uh, throughout the course of the season. The magic just might be really bad, but let's talk about the positive here. The Spurs were really fun. Who's your favorite young guy uh, on the Spurs, your favorite, uh, you know, between Dejounte Murray, Derek White, Lonnie Walker, Devin Vassell, Keldon Johnson, Josh Primo, who's the guy that stood out to you most?
1: Keldon Johnson. I part of why I like Keldon so much is that as a forward-sized guy who is a capable defender, he's more plug and play. And, I mean, the value of wings around the league is is sky high. And and we know Johnson works hard. That's part of why he got moved up from the select team to actually make the Olympic team. I, I didn't get to watch much of that game, and I've been intrigued by Devin Vassell before. So I wouldn't be stunned if by the end of the year it was Vassell. And Derek White, before the weird lost year that he had... He he was intriguing as well as somebody who could defend multiple positions and can shoot and can kind of fit in as a primary or a secondary ball handler. But I like Keldon Johnson the best.
0: I think I would still lean Keldon Johnson in this for sure. Uh, I asked this question solely because I thought Devin Vassell was awesome. In that game against the Magic. Uh, Everything came just so within the flow of the offense. It was so decisive. And by the way, that's also why I really like Keldon Johnson. Everything he does is just very decisive and aggressive. And uh, he makes quick decisions with the ball whenever he has it. Like, he doesn't really fuck around with it. He just keeps that thing moving or he's going to drive and attack. I will just say though, Devin Vassell, like, he pulled out like a penny, like, you know, turnaround jumper that was absolutely disgusting in the mid range. And with his high release point, it was really, really difficult to contest. Uh, he was really good defensively. He's so long and so active on that end. If, if it turns out to be Devin Vassell, I would not be surprised I think that I would lean Keldon Johnson just from a safety standpoint right now. Like, he's proven the most out of that group to me. DeJounte's been good, and Derek White's obviously been good. Uh, But I I think Keldon probably is the safest one of the group to be a great difference-making player. But Devin Vassell looks really, really good. And if the shot creation stuff particularly holds up, Uh, He he has a real shot, I think to be something of a difference maker in the NBA. Let's go to number 18. Now can Will Barton and his addition, which if you remember last year, he missed a big portion of the latter part of the season. Uh, He played, I think in what, maybe four of the games in the playoff series against the Suns, but wasn't himself very clearly. Uh, Will Barton is back and is fully healthy and can stay fully healthy. Can he bring the Nuggets just enough offense to where he keeps their perimeter play afloat while Jamal Murray is out and that they can sustain as a 50-win team?
1: I think he can, and part of why... Barton is so important is that he, especially in the kind of the non-Jokic units, he slots everybody else into more survivable roles. Because Barton can take on some of the playmaking, he can take on some of the scoring, so whether it's Facundo Campazzo, or Austin Rivers, or Monte Morris, depending on how they're structuring it, it just makes a lot more sense. You're, you're putting the ball in, in, in their hands a little bit less, you're having in Barton's hands a little bit more, and... The Nuggets have a lot of other really good players and they you know they I think they have some capable defensive theories which is always useful. So I I think it's they can be a 50 win team, you know they can play at that sort of a level. I'm not saying it's the most likely outcome just because injuries and like they're they're dancing on the knife's edge like really just because they already have one of their best players out and any team would be in that circumstance even when your number one player is the reigning MVP and an iron man but there is a there is a reasonable theory of the case and so that's why i'll say yes
0: i think that my answer is also yes i i think that barton was so good against that suns team uh on third wednesday night i guess that game would have been look i'm in australia the days are all off danny i can't even you know keep track of what day it is here let alone in the united states uh His aggressiveness definitely went noticed. I feel like last year in the playoffs, particularly they were just missing that level of aggressiveness and guys that are just willing to go get it right. Like Monte Morris is a great player. He's a great decision maker. Uh, He is someone that I think could stand to play a bit more aggressively. Uh, It's why Austin Rivers, like, I think was actually really useful for them in the playoffs because he was just ready to go for Mm -hmm. it, right? Like, he was out there. He would just catch the ball and he would fire. Will Barton does not have a conscience, and I think that just having that guy who doesn't have a conscience out on the perimeter uh, is going to be huge for them just in terms of being able to create enough offense around Nikola Jokic to where teams can't load up on Jokic and just try to make his life a living hell. It also helps to have, like, Probably, let's say, at least a top three offensive player in the NBA in Jokic. He's just such a superstar that it's incredible to me. Uh, Let's go to number 19. The Pacers tossed up threes on 53% of their shots in their first game under Rick Carlisle. Yeah, they gave up the big lead to the Hornets and they lost their opener. But are you more bullish on them after that opener, just based on what seems like really strong offensive process to me, given what their roster is?
1: Maybe vaguely. I have been a believer in Rick Carlisle's coach for such a long time that it's not a surprise. And and Nate Bjorkren, process-wise, I thought did some very good things for this, for the Pacers. It was just it's reportedly everything else that didn't go particularly well for him and the Pacers I thought the offense looked good and when you consider that they were missing two vital players in TJ Warren and Karis Levert like that's even more impressive because then you can put Justin Holiday and potentially Duarte and some of these other guys in in easier roles also you dramatically improve your depth so I, I think that the the argument that there is a pretty clear cut playoff team in Indiana if they could stay remotely healthy I I thought that before the season I continue to think that now so I don't think it significantly changed it but I was probably I think more people are going to be moving my direction than I'm going to be moving
0: yeah when I watched that game I just felt like they were actually running sets that really made sense like it was a drastically different deal than what Rick Carlisle was running in Dallas with you know having Luka Doncic around and centering the sun around like Luka was the sun in which everything was centered around right uh they ran a lot more you know two-man game stuff with Malcolm Brogdon and Demonis Sabonis I thought it was interesting that they didn't really close with Miles Turner uh they closed with Sabonis and then they played like Torrey Craig a reasonable amount. Uh, last year, Demonis Sabonis only had one game where he took six threes. He took six threes in the opener. I wonder if that's going to be like a real, uh, a real change for Sabonis, because I think that he actually can shoot like at a pretty reasonable level to where he can be a threat. And then on top of that, I do wonder if he does become a shooter at that level, does that make miles Turner available? Uh, at a level to which we haven't seen the Pacers like genuinely engage on Miles Turner trades. I don't know. I, I'm going to be really interested because I, I just don't. I think the I think you're right. I think the Pacers are going to be really good. I know that that first game had to suck to just to watch them lose that lead in the way that they did. But
1: uh, yeah, it was like a 23 to two run or something like that. Yeah,
0: I mean that was a Lamelo Ball like superstar performance. But at the end of the day, like I, I'm. I'm a little bit more bullish on them after such a crippling loss than what I thought I would be, just kind of thinking through the process. And that's, I don't know, I feel like that might be weird to some people, right? Yeah, could be. Okay, let's go to number 20. Are the Blazers legitimately just a six-deep team? with Larry Nance coming off the bench and their starters? Or do we trust Anthony Simons, Nasir Little, Tony Snell when he gets back from injury? Uh, Do we trust those guys enough to where the Blazers can have enough depth to make a legit top six playoff run?
1: If all you're asking those guys to do is play 10 to 20 minutes a game and be like a small cog in the offensive machine and try on defense in two of the three cases. I think they could do that. I, I like this year little. I thought he really showed some signs last year. I like Tony Snell. I don't think he's going to replicate the shooting performance that he had as an Atlanta Hawk last year. But he can be a capable ten to twenty minute a game wing. And that means it will be a problem of scale for the Blazers whenever somebody's out, because I don't think they have a lot of suitable replacements, you know, so if Robert Cup, Co- but maybe with Covington, they could slide. They can slide little, and he can do enough. But you know, even if it's if it's Nurk, and I, I really like Larry Nance Jr., but it's but then like, how do you fill the rest of it, and how do you do everything else? So, I think the Blazers have a chance of being a top sixteen. But I think their their offense is going to be awesome. Their defense looked abysmal yet again against the Sacramento Kings. But if they falter, I don't think depth is going to be the reason.
0: What do you think would be the reason if they falter?
1: Oh, abysmal defense. I mean, if they're a bottom five defense, then they're they're. I mean, and if you go back to the Terry Stotts through the Terry Stotts era, they had like a. I think they had an above twentieth defense three times, and those three teams were very good, and every other team was inconsistent.
0: Yeah, I was very startled that the Chauncey Billups era did not bring any real improvement defensively like they go out they get Larry Nance you get another year of continuity from Robert Covington you get Yusuf Nurkic back for a full season hopefully if they just weren't any better like that was a bad game maybe they'll be better you know coming up here in game two but I, I don't know that defense was rough and I feel like given that they might not have enough depth like there's They don't really have a guy coming off the bench right now other than Nance. Like, they don't have a wing or a guard that I feel like is going to change the game defensively just with, like, energy, right? Nasir Little could be that guy. Uh, And I think that, like, if he can fill that role, it would be phenomenal, but I don't think he is filling that role yet. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's doing it yet. Like that's what they need. They, they need Terry Snell or Tony Snell. I'm sorry. Good God. Uh, Terry Stotts, Tony Snell. They need Tony Snell to come in and really change.
1: I I was going to say they need Terry Rozier, which would be a really good help for them.
0: They need Terry Rozier. Oh God. Like, Terry Rozier, Damian Lillard, uh, Norman Powell, CJ McCollum. Let's just go, you know, all six foot three and under and just go nuts with like a bunch of scrappy, aggressive guys. Let's do it. I'm in. Okay. Number 21. And the final question, the only important question on the Game Theory Podcast Are you a believer in Pokuism, the acceptance of Alexei Pokushevsky as your basketball savior?
1: I like to start each year trying to find my favorite curiosity. And I will say that Poku and Pokuism have a very viable chance of being my favorite. And, and worth noting that many players and teams move beyond curiosity when they get to be too good. Shout out LaMelo Ball. Like, LaMelo Ball is too good to be a curiosity. Poku is a possibility. Your beloved NBA Chalamet, Josh Giddy is also a possibility. Um, but there are, there are a bunch of them and I'm not, I'm not hitching my wagon to any, any one star yet. I, I, I just kind of need to see, see where the rhythm takes me. But Poku is fascinating. And I, I, I don't know if you've played it at all, but one of the most delightful things, I've been fiddling a little bit with, uh, with 2K this year. Is the Pokuism video game experience is about on brand? Wait, really? Which is pretty amazing. <laughs> it like I was playing against the Thunder, and I'm like, wait, what is Poku doing? <laughs> it was kind of delightful.
0: I I might get NBA 2K just to play with Poku. Like I, that that might be my only or, or
1: or honestly to 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 play against Poku.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you see this like gangly seven footer out there flying around, yeah, I, I, chucking shots.
1: I did a I did a Rockets Thunder game because because one of the things I do in the early part when I'm kind of like calibrating a video game is I play teams that are like you know that are similar levels of skill and I wanted to play with Jalen Green so I'm like well who's similar level to the Rockets and I picked the Thunder and it was just like every once in a while like weird stuff would be happening on the other team and I'd be like oh yeah oh well, yeah
0: they have Poku Poku is uh, just wild uh, the, the the opener was not uh, the most. Exciting game for Poku, I will say that it was. Uh, he he was going up against a team in Utah that is actually well drilled and well schooled, and uh, he he didn't really it seemed like know totally what to do out there. But he had three assists and two turnovers. What a uh, the, the, we will we will be doing okay, some I, sort of Poku watch throughout the year on this podcast. Sam, I have a question for yes. you.
1: <laughs> will either Bowl Bull Bull or Bones Highland play enough? to qualify as a curiosity.
0: I think Bones should be in their rotation right now. Like, I I don't know what Denver is doing. Uh, Like, I think that they could actually use Bones a little bit. Like, I think they could actually use them really well. Uh, So, yeah, I think Bones will play. I've never been high enough on Bull Bull uh, to where I think that's a possibility. Like, if, if you want someone like Bull Bull in terms of curiosity... Just go with Poku, because he's more, like, agile and more coordinated and can pass the ball in, like, really creative ways. He's just, like, a more fun version of the bowl-bowl experience, I feel like. Fair. Danny... Thank you for being the guinea pig on this episode of 21 questions with the Game Theory podcast. Uh, How do you think it went? We struggled to record like people aren't going to hear it, but there were some there were some stoppages there because my internet died midway through the podcast. But how how do we think it went?
1: I think it was fun. Um, I I enjoyed basically thinking about this many things i mean there have only been as we record this three nights of games two of which were three game nights i mean one of them had even been a two game night and but we've already learned so much and there's already and there's still so much more to learn
0: yeah i'm really excited danny tell the people where they can find your work tell the people where they can hear those dulcet bay area tones
1: So in terms of listening, which is where most of my work is now, uh, you can listen to Real GM Radio. My most recent guest was the one and only Sam Vecini, where we focused on the 2022 and 21 drafts. Uh, You can also listen to Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. You can watch the NBA cast, which is going to be Mondays on League Pass. Nate Duncan and I will do one game a week and bring in some X's and O's and answer your questions. And then my written work, when it appears, will be at The Athletic, including some collaborative pieces with Sam Vecini.
0: Go subscribe to The Athletic. Go follow all of Danny's work. He does great work with Nate. He does great work uh, on Real GM Radio. He does great work all over the internet. We will be back later this week with some more good uh, NBA content. Uh, I'm going to try and record over the weekend with a good friend of the program. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.